Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the University of Houston Muslim Student Association podcast show, Volume 1, Episode 5. The mission of the UHMSA podcast is to discuss contemporary issues, raise social awareness, and encourage Muslim students to become contributing members of our ummah. I'm your host, Wasik Javid, and today's episode is with Sheikh Amar Ashokri. Sheikh Amar hails from Sudan via Queens, New York. It was in Sudan that Amar began his studies in the Arabic language at an early age. After returning to New York, he benefited from a local scholarship in a wide variety of Islamic sciences. He continued his studies in Houston with renowned scholars such as Dr. Salah Asawi and completed an extensive study with Dr. Walid Basuni. He holds a bachelor's degree in Islamic sciences with the Maghrib Institute. He is the author of What the Pen Wrote. Imam and resident scholar of River Oaks Islamic Center in Houston, Texas, and the content director for Faith Essentials and Faith IQ. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Ahmad. How's everything? Welcome to the show. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Welcome, Awasik. Jazakallah khair. I'm very happy to be invited. It's a big honor. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And we are honored to have you as well. Uh, UHMSA has, uh, you know, had you since last semester in fall 2019. You taught our first class, Seven Under the Shade of Allah, and you went through that hadith. And then this semester, you're teaching us the six pillars of Iman. Uh, so I want to begin uh, because many students and many people from our university, uh, we hear of you, we know of you, uh, you know, via social media and your platform, but we don't necessarily know your background, your history, uh, that you are even a poet. Uh, and and how, kind of where you grew up. So I want to, st- uh, to start by asking you, you know, what was your upbringing and, and what was your um, uh, childhood like and where did you grow up? Um, so there's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't really have much to say, but I, I grew up mostly in, in Queens, New York, and uh, my parents, uh, they had your average, like, practicing Muslim family. They had a lot of concern that we be uh, Sudanese and everything that that entails. Uh, and of the most important aspects of that was the Arabic language. And so I'm very indebted I'm very indebted to them for that. And that also led for me to spend a good amount of my childhood as well in Sudan. So bouncing back and forth between there. And I became inclined towards Islamic studies probably near the end of high school and in college and after college. And that kind of just took me on a track to get in contact with shiuch and being in their company and studying with them whenever and wherever I could. And I'm still on that path. So that's, that's pretty much my story. That's a very humble story in a, in a few minutes, so, so let's uncover that. Uh, when did you start writing poetry? And, and, you know, I've heard, you know, personally, when I first started writing poetry at the age of 15, uh, five, five years ago, uh, I used to see your videos all over YouTube, you, Buna Muhammad, all these other Muslim poets, uh, and there's many pieces that, you know, people worldwide are, are watching and, and tuning in. So where, where did that inspiration come from in that, in that journey as, as a poet? So I'm pretty, 
And so with poetry, poetry is something that I kind of discovered late. So probably around like 17, 18, I wrote my first poem. And it was not something, and it wasn't something that I really like committed myself to. It was something that I do every once in a while, I'll write. And up until now, it's still something that I do every once in a while, I'll write. But I'm, I'm very happy that the pieces that I have written have been pieces that connect with individuals and I kind of learned a little bit about the importance of marketing and and but I do believe in the arts even if I myself haven't really been been uh, spending as much time in the arts as I would even like I do believe that the arts is something that as a community we really need to support and we need to and and that's why even earlier today uh, am I allowed to do? Is it allowed to date this podcast? Uh, yeah, you're you're good. It's we yeah, released so, tomorrow, so yeah. yeah go for so it. even today we had uh, we had uh, a, a session, uh, a slam poem, uh, a, a, a slam poetry event online with Araha, the American Relief Agency for the Horn of Africa, and Buna Muhammad, of course, hosted, and myself and Ibrahim Jabir and. Just giving and and some amazing poets performed, including Wasik, who is way better than I was (laughs) at that age. And so, you know, it's really about giving people a platform. And when you're able to achieve something or you're able to to move forward, that you're able to bring people behind you who will take it even further. And that's how a community continues to grow. And so uh, the arts is something that I'm, I'm very excited about promoting. And I think that as a community, we need to move in that direction as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good, uh, important point. Uh, I think in the Muslim community, uh, it's been, you know, at times a, a struggle. And we even had a earlier episode, uh, three episodes ago on the intersection of Muslims and art. And uh, Muhammad Yunus, he was sharing his, his story of, you know, how, how it, uh, it had been difficult for him on his journey from his family and culturally, uh, people accepting uh, his specific artistry, which is which is acting and I know you you are a big promoter of art and it also includes other genres so um you know for for you what what is uh muslim art also i mean is it just poetry or how, how do you think we we as muslims as a community can can help support the art and and, and through which different mediums so i think i mean there's a lot of mediums out there there's uh, there's mm-hmm. no there's no limit to art form and that's what's beautiful about it is that Art is the manifestation of beauty. And so beauty can be manifested in, I mean, it, 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 millions of ways. And new art forms continue to be developed, right? So now recently, I mean, I don't know if this has always been a thing, but it's got to be a recent phenomenon, but cuisine becoming art, right? And there's artistry that's mm. even being manifested by by chefs, right? And so... and. For our community, a lot of times the conversation about art revolves around two things. Number one is what forms are halal versus what forms are haram. And number two is obviously, you know, the notion of the starving artist being a a very real thing. And that's why a lot of our children, our youth are pushed into the sciences or in general things that have a more uh, solid career path or solid career plan. And you know what? The starving artist is a real thing. But I think that the times that we are living in now, it has never been easier for artists to create actually a financial structure around themselves that is 
manageable, if not profitable. Um, from everything from having patrons to 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 you know getting uh, raving fans and having a base that supports you to merchandise to there's a lot of creativity with the global marketplace that is in existence now there's a lot of infrastructure that is in place that people can take advantage of that people you know even just 20 years ago did not have access to so that's with regards to um, the career path is this something that a person can actually be successful in but number two, of course, is the notion of uh, permissibility versus impermissibility. And I would actually challenge our community to be more creative because a lot of times that conversation revolves ex exclusively with regards to um, music or in acting as well with regards to the roles that people take and the things that they depict. And I feel like with regards to music, I mean, the majority of scholars have always held that music is haram. It's it's a minority position to say that it's allowed, and you know, it's it's kind of, I feel like a person is is banging their head against something that's a solid structure. But even beyond that, that's that's my point. My point is is that why are we just limiting our entire manifestation of art as a culture to just one manifestation there's a million different other art forms there is uh, you know i recently just um you know the the most creative community i think in the united states is the african-american community uh, as far mm -hmm. as just uh, art right and and they really push culture forward and american culture much of what becomes popular american culture is african-american culture because of that creativity and them having that social capital mm. but um i was just watching something for example amazing you know you you've you've watched these rap battles wasak yeah of course the, the idea is what i found really interesting is that you have an entire crowd of people being thoroughly entertained for two hours at a time three hours hundreds of people packing a place and there's no music involved so what does that mm. tell you? That's right, a, right. that's an art form. We can, we can have fun without. That, that's an right. art form that sure. was created. But now you've got another problem, of course, and that problem is that a lot of these, you know, battles have a lot of, you know, things that would be held on for another reason, which is, you know, the 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 uh, the verbal abuse and the vulgarity and the cursing and all of these types of things. But who's to say that you couldn't create an art form? Again, they were able to solve one problem, and we've got another issue. But as a community, why can't we be creative enough to create art forms that reflect our values, our values, right? And so mm. this is some of the things I think that need to be discussed and addressed because art is incredibly necessary. I always tell people what art does is it makes your culture felt. Art makes culture felt. People don't people will absorb information, they will understand information, but they will connect with art at an emotional level where they feel you. And until we're able to actually do that, then people won't feel, they won't experience the Muslim community from outside of it. Man, subhanAllah. I think you have a you know a, a unique background um, sharing 
you know, being a poet and then also uh, a sheikh. And so I, I want to turn over now to, to your, you know, your background and what motivated you on the path to scholarship? Uh, you know, what, what, when did you start? You said it started uh, your senior year in high school and uh, your early college days. So, so what, what, what during those days and those adolescent years, what kind of was a turning point in your life that made you decide you, you want to pursue this? Um, I think a couple of things. Number one is the the virtue of seeking knowledge in and of itself. The Prophet ﷺ, he said that whoever seeks a path towards knowledge, Allah will facilitate for them a path to paradise. And when you hear the stories of the companions and the you know the greatness and the curiosity of Aisha and the incredible curiosity as well and intelligence of Abdullah ibn Abbas and Abdullah ibn Umar, these companions resonated with me and they were all scholars and uh, the the stories of the scholars from before and realizing that when you're in, when you are seeking knowledge that everything in this world is seeking forgiveness for you, the Prophet says, even the fish in the sea. And there is nothing that is more virtuous than seeking knowledge if a person is sincere. Like, uh, and not only that, but of course the need for it. At the end of the day, people who are uneducated can always be uh, misled. And so you need to be knowledgeable in and of yourself, number one, so that you can worship Allah clearly, that you aren't misled by other people. There's a famous story of one of the great scholars of Spain, Ibn Hazm. And Ibn Hazm is just a powerhouse in fiqh. And he was literally one of the greatest imams in the history of Islam. But he, he, didn't, he didn't grow up in like, you know, normally scholars, they memorize the Quran early and they start on the path from a very young age. But he wasn't of that. He wasn't of, he wasn't in that world and he wasn't interested. He was from a very affluent family and he was uh, a young man in Spain. And so he had all sorts of luxuries and distractions presented to him. In any case, he went into the masjid on, a, on an occasion and it was after Asr. And he came in and he sat down. And so one guy told him and he said, it's after Asr. He, or he said to him, you can't just walk into the masjid and sit down, get up and pray. And so he got up and prayed. And then on another occasion, he came into the masjid, it was after Asr, and so he just started praying. And then while he was praying, a guy told him and he said, like, what are you doing? It's after Asr, you don't pray now. And so, same circumstance, one guy tells him, get up and pray, the next guy tells him, don't pray now. And so Ibn Hazm became annoyed by that. And he said, "I'm not gonna leave my I'm not gonna leave my religion to be like just to be bullied by everybody all the time. Like other people telling me what to do, I need to learn it for myself. I need to know what is expected of me and what I need to do. And so the first first reason, of course, is that you yourself are able to worship Allah with certainty. You know what you're doing. And number two, the second is in the hopes that you might be someone who." is able to guide other people and becomes a lighthouse for other individuals and someone that others can can benefit from from what you've learned. And absolutely, that is also something that now you're just absolutely multiplying 
your positive effect and, and your reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and there's nothing like being able to teach people knowledge and to be able to share it. Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be in an official capacity. It doesn't have to be like being the imam somewhere or giving khutbahs on the mimbar. For me, for example, I think of some of the most influential people in my life when I was a teenager, and they still are the most influential people of my life because they really directed me. It was conversations in cars. It was on a basketball court. It was at a fried chicken spot, right? It was these older mentors, and they weren't much older than me, by the way. They were maybe a year or two years older, and I'm 16, 17, but they had knowledge, and they were able to, they would be someone who I could ask and, and, and they would they would answer or they would know how to get the answer or they would know how to research or what have you. And uh, knowledge is protective, absolutely. I mean it's 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 an incredible sweetness. I don't know how better better else to describe it. Do you see any difference between your generation and our generation today and and the and the struggles that Muslim youth go through in our day and age, in 2020. Um, so what would you describe, Asak, to be the main struggles that y'all go through? Like, top three. Okay. So the struggles I think we go through now, the first, I think, is relationships and uh, desires for the opposite gender. Okay. Okay. So that's every generation ever. That's not going to change. Uh-huh. The second thing, I think, is uh, drugs. And that can include everything from... Uh, well, drugs slash smoking, because nowadays there's a lot of vape and there's a lot of, um, you okay. know, newer forms of, of smoking more than just the cigarette, um, like jewels and whatnot, jewel pods, etc., hookah. Uh, the third, I would say, is, you know, with the age of social media and, and phones, uh, it's just very easy to slip with the eye. Uh, so struggles like such as pornography, I think are, are personally, I think the top three struggles that, that our generation faces as Muslim youth. Okay. So so yeah then, then yeah so the question was what what struggles did you have in your generation um, and how do they compare to to ours in in today's age? What struggles that we had? Mm-hmm. Because you guys didn't have phones, you guys you know it was it was a whole different you know experience for you growing up. Uh, what was it in? Early nineties, late eighties, <laughs> if I'm if I'm correct. Dang, dude, how old do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> when you were growing you up in the late eighties, early nineties, mashallah. Nineties, nineties, baby. Uh, so we did have phones when I was growing up. Uh, but what I would say is, I, I think uh, a couple of things. There, there's a couple of aspects to that. So it depends also where you grow up. I don't even think that where everybody grows up is similar. For example, I can tell you growing up in New York is completely different than growing up in Houston. Growing up in uh, California, completely different, right? These, these growing up in Michigan, completely different. Yes, you have some things that you've shared that are, they're going to be similar no matter what, such as the drug use and such as the, you know, relationships and, and attraction to the opposite gender and all of that type of stuff, all of that is going to be the same. Although you might argue that access is easier now. And it is, I think, as far as just being able to, to, to see people and 
find people on Instagram or, or whatever it is, um, you know, Tinder, all of these things, that a person is just able to, 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 to navigate and to be able to find potential, uh, you know, people of interest. But that being said, I, I don't actually think that these are necessarily the defining uh, challenges that you guys are facing because these things are, aren't necessarily unique. What I do see as being drastically different is um, you know, issues of like identity, issues of um, where you fit in the world and where you fit in society. I think that when, when you have kids who grew up you know, you were, you're 19, right? So you were born, what is that, 2001? 2000. So you were born 2000 and you have kids who were born 2001, 2002. So, you know, 9-11 happened, a, you were a year old or two right, years old. I have no or, memories of it, of course. Yeah, you have no memories, but guess what? You grew up in a post 9-11 world and you grew up with a Muslim community that has shifted completely in the way that it carries itself and the thing that it, 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 it um, both internally and externally, right? Um, and, and, and these are, uh, these are shifts that you're not necessarily aware of, but for anybody who's, who's witnessed the shift, it's, 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 it's very, very glaring. So, you know, we just had a, a recent like you know uh, major conference here in in so for example growing up where just uh, an easy example I would go to conferences back in the day where it was you know the people who who the conferences highlighted and the people who the conferences you know the the, the people who people came for in these Islamic conferences were number one Muslim. And number two, they were generally people who were exceptional in their Islam, whether they were uh, or, or perceived to be exceptional in their Islam because of their scholarship or because of you know the, their knowledge or because of um, you know their 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 service to the Muslim community in some capacity. Uh, so these were the people who the community would look to for guidance. And now, you know, you're talking about major conferences. You know, uh, where the people who are headlining them are, you know, a non-Muslim comedian, right? Or a a um, you know a, a political a politician, or uh, you know an an activist, for example. Even though if it's a Muslim activist, then then granted, but you're seeing, and this is all a shift that has changed where the Muslim community, and and part of it is absolutely. Uh, was necessary in that the Muslim community was very insular before 9-11. They were very much, you know, um, I won't say unconcerned. And, and this is also where I mentioned like the different regions of the country are, are drastically different. So, for example, uh, growing up in New York, like I, I don't remember ever hearing an English khutbah in my life, ever. Wow. Wow! It just it was just like never all, like or do more Arabic. It was whatever it is. I mean, it depends <clears> on on what area of the city you're in. If you're in an Arab area, then your the khutbah is going to be in Arabic, and if it's Urdu or Bangla or whatever. But New York is 
New York has always been like that. It's a very ghettoized city. That's why you can have something like a Chinatown. That's why you can have a little Italy. That's why you can have, like, you have these pockets of immigrants. And because it is the first stop of immigrants when they enter into the United States, you have a lot of people who spend a couple months there and then they move on and then they... And then you have a lot of people who do stay and a lot of people who, you know, don't speak English. It's a lot easier for them to stay in a place like New York because they don't need to speak English. Right. They can they can get by. And so the makeup of a lot of these other cities is actually a lot different than the makeup of people in a city like New York, in a city like London, in a city like, you know, Toronto, I would imagine. And and so I remember when I would when I when I started traveling, like my first time I started traveling outside of New York and seeing other cities and other communities and interacting with people my age who know they've actually been hearing English khutbas all their life. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But at the same time, if you grow up the way that the kids in New York grew up, then you might actually find that they're much stronger in their identity uh, from, from the countries that they come from. The, pl- the the places that they are, uh, I won't even say ancestral, but like where their parents might have come from or where they might have been born in. And and I found like places like Michigan, that that identity, that uh, identity is still very, very strong, that immigrant identity. And then you have other places where it's much weaker. Like, for example, Houston, it's amazing to me that I've, I never, ever see a person wearing a thobe outside. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't ever see a person wearing a shawa kameez, you know, out on, out and about on town. I don't know if I'm just I haven't run into it. Well, like, have you ever seen people like wear shawa kameezes walking down Westheimer? No, I, I, I would I, I would agree with you. No, uh, it's we I don't think we're we're there yet. Even when you go to you know Hillcroft, for example, and it's not about getting there. Right. It's just not the culture of the place. Right, it's not right, the culture right. of the people here. Whereas, for example, on the East Coast. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have no problems dressing like that. They will be wearing thobes out, out on the street and walking around and they'll be wearing shawal. That, that type of manifestation of, of a, a look that is different than your average American uh, you know, wear is, is, is very normal. In any case, I say all of this to say that for me, I think one of the, ma- the major shifts that you guys are dealing with is really being pushed into being, I guess, it's not just a matter of being American because America allows for a lot of, a lot of different subgroups and America allows for a lot of different sub, subcultures. But I think you guys feel a pressure that we didn't feel to be like as American as apple pie, so to speak, like mainstream American. You guys have a, a pressure for acceptance into mainstream American society, whether that's through being, you know, um, you know, through the arts or whether it's through, uh, you know, celebrating every person who ever takes a position of uh, political leadership or there's a there's a desire to to be um, accepted into American society at a level that I didn't see with, with my generation growing up. How do you suggest we, we resolve that yeah. uh, problem of assimilation? Because I think um, for many Muslim youth, especially with that identity crisis and what you're describing, um, you know, growing up in high school, personally myself, like I, 
I struggled with that and and I didn't profess my faith honestly like proudly and confidently probably until uh, my senior year in high school and other people around me um, you know they you see them in high school they change their names or they you know fit in with one with one crowd or another Uh, maybe maybe not out of desire that they sincerely want to but exactly what you're saying that it's it's just that external pressure Um, yeah I mean I cannot I cannot overstate the importance of a young person seeing a strong, proud Muslim. Like I tell people this all the time. I'm 15 years old. Probably some of the people who had the most positive effect on me were, you know, two or three 16-year-old kids who were proudly Muslim. And they were super strong in their faith and mm. they were strong physically. Because people are attracted to strength. They're not attracted to weakness. People will support the weak. People will defend the weak. But people don't want to be the weak. And that's, a, and that's I think, a, a, a huge miscalculation that a lot of people make in their da'wah, you know, this appeal always to them being victimized. Well, I want to support and defend the victim, sure. But if you keep are always communicating to me that you're a victim, your community is a victim. Well, I don't want to be part mm. of a community that's victim always. People are attracted to strength. And that's why, Wasak, if I can tell you over the past 50 years, who are some of the most influential, you think, Islamic personalities that the United States has ever seen? Uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, um, and well, that I don't know if that counts for the past fifty years. Well, we can go yeah. with those two. Those are usually those are usually the two anyway. That's what I was looking for, and both of them are incredibly mm. strong. Incredibly strong. Malcolm Muhammad Ali, my God. Uh, or uh, uh, what is that famous quote of his? My religion, not yours. Get used to me, proud, proud black, confident. My name, not right, yours. Right. right, just incredible strength. And Malcolm X, of course, incredible strength. And so you're talking about two, just two individuals who have have breathed strength into the Muslim community in the United States for 50 years. That's what strength does. But we don't we don't show that strength, right? We're very timid with regards to what we say. We're very cautious because I'm always worried, even in da'wah when I'm speaking to my fellow like peers, and I'm always very, very... They're coming to me with the most ridiculous arguments about atheism and, uh, you know, desires and all of these types of things. And I'm kind of just, you know, always just tiptoeing around it. I'm not addressing it with any strength. As an MSA, we're not addressing anything with any sort of power or strength or and conviction. When you speak falsehood with strength, you will gain followers. Mm. So what then about a person speaking the truth with strength? SubhanAllah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya Yahya, khudil kitaba biquwa. He says, Oh Yahya, take this book with strength. Take this book with strength. So for me, you know, uh, two individuals, one of them, you know, his name was Muhyiddin, African-American brother, 
16, he might have been 17 or 18, but I was 15 and, you know, we'd hang out a lot. And I remember this, just the, the, the conversations that he would have with everybody, you know. And again, you don't necessarily need to be a scholar to give da'wah. But what I really appreciate, and I think this is also a major shift, is, uh, you know, it's hard to come across people who all they want to do is just talk about Allah and talk about da'wah and feel that type of responsibility and feel that type of burden even at 16, 17, 18 years old. And so for him, for Muhyiddin, you know, I remember him, one particular thing I remember, to go back to your conversation about relationships, I remember him saying just point blank, obviously, like, yeah, I'm a virgin. SubhanAllah, you, you won't even yeah. get that nowadays at all. No, even back then, like it was something that yeah. if a person did it, you know, you know, it's kind of something shy. It's something embarrassing, obviously, in, 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 you know, in American culture and all of that. But at the same time, he's super strong, right? He's like a, a big guy, strong guy. He's not somebody that if he says it like people, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Hamza and Umar when they accepted Islam. It's like it, it, it there's nobody who can mess with people like that. And I remember him just saying like, yeah, obviously I am. And. Mm. I plan on being one, of course, until I get married, and I'm going to get married at 25. And he had his whole plan, and and he's just he would speak these truths, and he would do it openly, and he'd do it with strength. And again, when you allow people to see the truth, and if you're able to package it with that, then you will find people who will recognize it as being truth, and they will appreciate it. About your friend. So now you yourself married, and, and I know you have uh, a daughter, mashallah. Um, so what, 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 is it, what is it like for you as a first-generation father, um, you know, raising your children here, here in America? I mean, so here's the thing, and this is something that I tell immigrant uh, parents all the time, right? And, and it's something that a lot of, so when you have an, a wave of, of, of of people who come from wherever they're coming from. They always, no matter what their culture, they always have this fantasy that they're engaging. And that fantasy is, we're just gonna be here for a little while and then we're gonna come back. We're gonna go back, mm. right? They're gonna go back to Sudan, they're gonna go back to Somalia, they're gonna go back to Pakistan, they're gonna go back to Iraq, they're gonna go back to wherever it is that they. Mm. And they raise their children based on that. And they're still incredibly close to their family overseas because it might be their siblings it might be their parents it might be their right it might be their village their town their extended family all of that and they're raising their children here and they are kind of in a parallel way competing with their the children that are being raised back home and so Mm -hmm. if your cousin is doing something uh over in wherever like you are trying to do the same thing and so they're trying to raise uh, children with a particular ethnic identity with all of the bells and whistles whether it is language whether it is history whether it is you know cultural reference you know they want they want to be able to raise a Sudanese kid in New York just like but to, for him to be fully Sudanese just as if he was raised in Khartoum his whole life right uh, or or Pakistani uh, in Houston but they want them to be as fluently Pakistani uh, and as completely Pakistan as if, he, you know, with all of the values and with all of the bells and the whistles and all of that mm. type of stuff. Um, and that's like the biggest daydream ever because it's not going to happen. 
values change even within so we're we're talking now we're we're talking about a shift in 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 a, a generational shift even within the same country right we're talking about your generation growing up versus my generation within the same country same history curriculum same books same cultural references all of that type of stuff but just the only thing that's changed is the decade and the everything's already shifted mm-hmm. and everything is different so how much more different is it when you've not only it's not only a generational shift but it is a shift of everything else it's a different language different uh, different religion even religious values because we're growing up in a secular society versus a, a, a muslim dominated society and all of that so to think that all of that input is going to be different and somehow the output is going to be the same is like i mentioned it's just it's a, it's a nice fantasy but what is beautiful is that Maybe I won't be able to raise a Sudanese kid in Houston, Texas, or I'll be able to raise a person with these particular values. But I can raise a child who believes in Allah and his messenger anywhere on earth. Because religion and belief does not require to be in a particular cultural environment. And, you know, the verse that I always like to share in that regard is the greatest... Um, you know, one of the examples of the, a great father in the Quran, and that was Yaqub alayhi salam, and he migrated with his children to a non-Muslim land, to Egypt, and Allah subhanahu wa taala recounts his concern, even though he was, you know, for our families who say like, for our families who say that they have, a, you know, we've got a really amazing lineage, or our tribe is this, or our family is this. There's nobody who has a better lineage than Yaqub. He was the son of Ishaq, the son of Ibrahim. And Yusuf is his son, right? It's just nobility after nobility after nobility. But even then, when he migrated to Egypt, his last words when he was dying, as Allah mentions in Surah Al-Baqarah, is, and his children are around him, what does he say? He says, What are you going to worship after? Mm. That's the question. Not whether y'all are going to be you know, Palestinian or whether you're going to be Egyptian, or whether you're going to be Malaysian, or what are you going to worship? What are our tr- and, and that is an identity that we can pass on from one generation to the next. We can make it, inshallah, that our children, 200 years, 500 years from now, are still Muslim. That is something that can be done anywhere, including in the United States. And so that is what we should be directing our, our energy towards and our resources towards, as opposed to creating a cultural identity that by and large we're going to experience just like every other community experienced. We're going to have children a hundred years from now who are going to say, I have a great grandfather who's Pakistani and I have a great grandmother who's, uh, you know, Senegalese and I have a great, uh, and I have a, a like a mama basically. And people are going mm. to have that. So, so on that note, um, you know, I think to, to successfully, you know, raise our children in future generations, it's going to require, um, at the at, at the bare minimum, you know, knowledge, right? Knowledge of our deen uh, for ourselves to, uh, you know, seek it and then and then to teach it on to others. Uh, but I know for many youth, it's it's hard for us, and you know, we make excuses or laziness overcomes us, or we procrastinate and we think we have to you know, go to a, a formalized program or I have to go study abroad 
um, you know, in, in Egypt or in Saudi or something like that. Uh, how can we implement knowledge in our life? And, and, you know, the access is everywhere, but it may seem that we're just not motivated. Um, so how, how can we, you know, endeavor on that path uh, and, and acquire, you know, at the, at the, for the, the core knowledge that we need and the core essentials that we need uh, to sustain ourselves? So, you know, there's a there's an African proverb that I love very much, which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, mm. go together. And so I like that, the importance of having social uh, support in doing that, doing, you know, you guys are learning right now how hard it is to learn online. Yeah compared to how easy it is, right? Like now, going back to when you were at school, how, how much easier was it for you to stay on top of your classes and when you had the support of all of your classmates and all of that? You're in a bubble together and you're all moving from one semester to the next and, to, to, and you're moving with your graduating class every year and it's just, it's a lot easier when you have that social support. And so I would say, but unfortunately when it comes to learning Islam, we don't have that here very much right we don't have that and so it's it's basically up to everybody's own devices their own you you kind of have to create your own self-study program even if it's with local shiuch and all of that it's it's there isn't necessarily any any particular you know formalized route where you can go with an actual class and have that support and have the benefit of Mm. of classmates but it is possible to create it and so even now you know with the, the University of Houston students there's a lot that you guys can do that you guys can do it together so that you have that structure and that you have that support system uh, whether it's enrolling in an institution together whether it is you know taking particular classes together but not just taking it by yourself who are 10 people for example that can take it with me and encouraging each other to do that and 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 you know there's a to that point about I just need to travel to Egypt or Saudi or what have you. There's an adage that says, um, you know, uh, that they've always said, and that is that whoever does not absorb the knowledge in their city will not absorb the knowledge outside of it. Meaning that a person doesn't travel all the way to Egypt to learn Tajweed. Right. I mean, you have have a local imam probably right next door. You see what I'm saying? Like, you can do that. You can do that at your local masjid. You don't need to travel all the way to Saudi Arabia to memorize the Quran. Like Imam sure. Hamza Giyah is pumping out Hufad left and right here in Houston. You see what I'm saying? Like you don't need to do that. You don't need to, to, to travel. You don't need to go anywhere until you've uh, absorbed the knowledge locally as best as you can obviously if a person's in an institution then everything is prepared for you it's presented for you it's structured you know and you've kind of freed your time up you you freed up your your life even uh you don't have all of the other commitments pulling at you and so there's a benefit there but at the my point is is that a person should never Mm. not move forward because of where they're at today and tomorrow and the day after and a year because there are some people who just stay in place and they're enjoying that fantasy of I'm going to go overseas next year or two years and so they don't do anything in the meantime no you should and there's a lot that can be done definitely 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 so we have a a few minutes left uh I want to ask you if if you have uh 
any any advice that you want to give us or any final thoughts you want to conclude with uh ramadan is coming up this week we're experiencing a very unique time uh during the this coronavirus and so we're all quarantined uh no ramadan you know in the masjids no iftar parties no uh tarawih prayers and so um do you have any any advice for us uh being you know uh to our audience muslim youth university of houston college students on how we can maximize this ramadan well, I think the, the, it's the, this lesson that we're learning um, is this Ramadan is a, a fantastic and great lesson for you to learn in your youth. And that is the importance of being able to worship Allah alone. Not dependent on people being around you. Not depend, having your own private relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all of the crutches being removed, all of the crutches being removed is incredibly important. And if there is a weakness that you have, that the community was, uh, if there is a weakness that you have, that the community was, was, was kind of, you know, supporting you in, that this is the time for you to strengthen that weakness. And so... If my problem right now and I'm trying to find the fatwa for online taraweeh because I can't read the Quran, no, the answer isn't that you find the fatwa that will allow you to follow taraweeh, you know, uh, online. The answer is for you to spend that time in learning how to read the Quran, right? Removing those weaknesses and sp- sp- exactly, my daughter is agreeing with me. Removing those weaknesses. And being able to put yourself in a position that you can worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with strength, irrespective of your circumstance. Because there is a servitude for every circumstance. There's a servitude that comes with congregation, just like there's a servitude that comes alone. And so what we're experiencing right now is the servitude that comes on your own. May Allah accept and make it the best Ramadan we've ever had. Thank you for, for joining us, Sheikh Omar. Uh, I want to ask uh, if you can... And this semester, this is the first semester that the UH MSA started a podcast, uh, and so we want. And you are the last episode, so we want to end this on a banger uh, and ask you, request you, uh, to share a poem that you yourself have wrote uh, to to end the show, inshallah. Okay, so to end it on a poem, your your best piece, whatever you got. Yeah, so this is yeah, this is easy actually. This is welcome Ramadan, okay. So it goes, Oh you who believe. Fasting was prescribed for you as it was prescribed for those before you that you may shield yourselves from Allah's wrath. A high and lofty goal in which fasting was made a path and obligation, rather a mighty pillar of the faith to abstain from anything that would cause the path to break. To abstain from anything that would cause the fast to break with the intention of worship from the time of the sun's rise until it sets on the horizon for its daily demise. And fasting has two pillars in which agreement was acquired. The first is to refrain from two physical desires, desire for food and drink, and those of a sexual type. And the second is that the intention must be done in the night. True dawn to sunset is the normal time frame observed, but in extreme circumstances, the nearest normal neighbor is preferred, and it is a most virtuous act of worship if you only knew. To release yourself from your desires and to become a better you because the blessings of fasting are too great to be counted. And its reward with Allah is too great to be amounted, but in this short introduction, let it suffice to say that it increases you in taqwa, which you've witnessed every day during the blessedness of this month, a safeguard from evil, protection from the shayateen, 
protection from the shayateen, those of the jinn and people, and it's a act only done for Allah, so he's the only one who rewards it, and its gate is a rayyan, only those who fast go towards it. The breath of those who fast is more beloved to Allah than the scent of musk. And that ummah united daily in worship from dawn till dusk. Gone is gluttony and greed replaced with compassion for those in need and a healthy body and a healthy rest given to bodies that all year we overfeed. So indeed, one could go on and on. 11 months is too long, but welcome, welcome to Ramadan. MashaAllah, MashaAllah. Let's do some snaps on this. Jazakallah khair for joining us. Jazakallah khair. I really enjoyed it. And thank you very much, Wasak, for, for hooking this up. That was Sheikh Amar Ashukri, poet and scholar, joining us today on the fifth episode of the University of Houston Muslim Student Association podcast show. Thank you to all our listeners. This is the first time that UHMSA produced this podcast in spring 2020. We look forward to continuing this in the fall with Wasik Javid, myself, and Bilal Salama, who has been doing a phenomenal job behind the scenes in the studio sessions, recording and editing uh, these podcast episodes. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys in the fall. Thank you for joining us again. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.